Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Beyonce and Jay-Z's new album lights up the city of lights. Amazon, Apple, and Netflix sign celebrity production partners, plus Bill and Ted may have new excellent adventures. It's our pop culture roundtable. Later in the show, a Massachusetts woman found a pathway to grace on a Plymouth walking trail. I was looking for a quieter, more peaceful place that I felt was right next to me, but I couldn't get there. I couldn't find my way there. So I was looking for a way from the chaos and confusion of my life to a more peaceful place where I could function. And Barry Jolis on turning her pain into purpose on the Grace Trail. But first, joining me from the studio, Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hi, Callie. Also with me, Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Rachel. Thanks, Callie. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, when Beyonce and Jay-Z do something, they do it big, and this time they did it secretively as well. They dropped a new album, and uh, this is the third coming after their individual albums, which dealt with their infidelity. People were freaked out. But the big thing about it is that they taped one of their signature songs of the one that they released at the Louvre in Paris. Goodness gracious. Let's take a listen to a cut from the new album called Everything is Love. Give me the ball, give me the ball, take a top shift. She went crazy. Call my girls and put them all on a spaceship. Hang one night with you say I'll make you famous. Have you ever seen a crowd going ax? So there you go. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Um, some of the music critics, Rachel, have commented on the mix of genres. Uh, that particular one has a so-called trap percussion, which, for folks who don't know, was invented in the Atlanta 80s. It's a combination of hip-hop-inspired electronic music um, with a lot of other stuff going on. There's something called a TR-808 sampling that is apparently predominant in trap percussion. I thought I'd put that out there for people who may know. So what do you think about the album and the timing and all of that? Yeah, well, the fat scoop, actually, the timing is what struck me the most about it um, because, well, first of all, it made me realize that I don't even know exactly how to put it, but album releases, the release is a kind of performance art and people pay more attention to that actually than they do the content of the album. And so I think that's an important cultural shift. You know, I want to call attention to it and, you know, I'd be interested, Michael, to hear if you have any thoughts about like what that means. Um, it also, because of all of, uh, all of the careful structuredness of this I personally think it is a reminder of the careful structuredness of the previous ones you mentioned, right? The ones about so-called infidelity, that this is all sort of 
part of a plan. Hmm. So that was Beyonce's album, just so people remember, was Lemonade. Lemonade. And then um, it was uh, 444, Jay-Z's album, which responded to that in a way. Um, Michael. Yes, and then this album sort of, as you suggested, wraps up the trilogy, right, and, and offers a kind of resolution to the marital strife that has been depicted on the first two uh, two albums. So it does fit very kind of nicely into a story. One of the other things I like about the clip we played is it, it shows the evolution of both of these musicians, both as individual artists and as collaborators. You hear Beyonce performing in much more of a hip-hop style with a kind of... Uh, uh, almost like like uh, the, the derogative term is mumble rap. But it's, <laughs> yes, because I have to go read the lyrics to understand what she is saying. But go ahead. Well, I, the kids tell me that's in fashion these days, though, so I'm not going to knock it. Um, but one of the other things you hear in the very brief clip is you hear Jay-Z not only echoing her, but really talking to her and lifting her up, calling the listener's attention to what she is doing on the track. So there's not just a situation where one of them raps, then the other one takes their turn, and there's no dialogue. Like, this is a a real dialogue between them on the record. And to see that uh, between two collaborators in hip hop is not new, but for two romantic partners, two intimate partners, and for one of them to be a woman and to have this relationship, we've never really seen that kind of dialogue uh, at this level of commercial success. And again, Beyonce just doing this, when you think about where she started, as a pop and R&B artist with, like, can you pay my bills, right? Like, <laughs> that, that type of Destiny's Child sound that she had now versus a kind of unapolog unapologetically black, black South uh, hip-hop sound. She's made an incredible journey as an artist, and she pulls it off. She has. You know, she absolutely has. I wanted to pick up on that because uh, it's, as I said, it's nine songs and a bonus track on here. And they, uh, many people have made much of the fact that here they were in the Louvre. This is on just one of the pieces, but just, just to make this point, the most European-centric place you could be. And they brought all this extreme blackness into the space, the dancers, the, the songs, whatever. So that's one thing. The second thing is that there is a track in which... Um, Jay-Z makes a point about uh, years of drug trafficking in his youth and being pulled into court after that. Time to remind me I'm black again, huh, is one of the lyrics. And then Beyonce, dealing with both race and class, says, my great-great-grandchildren already rich. That's a lot of brown children on your Forbes list. So... Jump in, Rachel. Well, that's an, I mean, and that is such an important aspect of hip hop. I mean, she's like doing it, you know, from this woman's perspective. But I think that that is, you know, one reason um, that it got actually got a lot of criticism, right? That there are like all of these early hip hop men bragging about their cars or whatever, and it's like, no, you have to actually put it in this context, right? That in the United States, there's this huge wealth and income gap. And they are saying they're like they're like you know even if it is symbolic they're sort of erasing that and so Beyonce is doing that too and I also have to say that I think filming it in the Louvre also needs a different historical framing mm -hmm. and that is there are so many museums that have works of art that they've stolen from companies right in, you know during colonial times mm -hmm. and there's a lot, a lot of discussion about it so sort of taking back over that space and being in control mm. of the art, to me, is very moving. 
Um, I note that in Lemonade, uh, Beyonce has a lyric, uh, Michael, that I often quote, always stay gracious, your best revenge is your paper. <laughs> so if people don't know what paper is, that's money. Yeah. <laughs> Michael. And it speaks directly to this point, right? Yeah. Because there's a debate, not only among hip-hop fans, but among all pop culture consumers and fans of black popular culture, is about whether or not this kind of celebration of wealth and the uh, entrance into what have been traditionally white and European and colonized colonizer spaces, uh, whether or not that's... Uh, worthy of celebration or a sufficient cause for, for celebration, right? Because they've bragged about their wealth before. This is not a new topic <laughs> for either one of these artists, nor is it new within the hip-hop community. But the kind of, I think, visual interruptions they're trying to make here, it's not just that we have access to it and we want to integrate ourselves into these spaces. It's that we want to reveal that we have a real ownership claim to the kind of cultural production that you think is yours. Mm -hmm. No, like this is ours just as much as it is yours. Not only do we have a right to be here, but this is ours. That, that kind of ownership claim, I think, is what they're pursuing. Now, that may still be unconvincing for people, right? Like there are plenty of people who can see this video and say, well, this is just another celebration of wealth. It doesn't do anything for us politically mm -hmm. when you look at what black suffering looks like in the Americas and in the world. Uh, but I think that's one of the values that this album has is it allows us as hip hop fans and as pop culture fans to really have these discussions about what does resistance and subversive behavior, subversive politics look like in our current political moment. Well, one thing we can say, as I put a button on this discussion, is that they will always stay in the conversation. And, you know, they're not young. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, she's kind of, but you know, they're 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 good at that. Yeah, they are, and they have a lot, the to, and they have a lot to say. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, moving on. Um, when last we spoke, I, I think we talked about Ashonda Rhimes moving from ABC to Netflix, and now in sort of one, two, three fashion, we have Nicole Kidman striking a deal with Amazon Studios, Oprah Winfrey striking a deal with Apple, and another Netflix deal with the Obamas. Both of them, Michelle and. And uh, Barack will note that neither one of them are producers, but they are going to work with folks to produce um, content that they believe is, is really important. What to make of this, Michael? Well, on one hand, I think it's kind of an arms race for some of these streaming services, right, to associate themselves with a marketable brand, right? Once the Obamas made the Netflix announcement, other people were under pressure. So now Oprah's partnered with Apple and Amazon's partnered with Nicole Kidman. And I think we're going to see more of this. So I think at a very basic level, it's just a marketing strategy. Um, but the other piece of this, and this is something that was pointed out in the article with the Washington Post, is that it's less risky for a first-time content producer like the Obamas to sign with Netflix rather than attaching themselves to an established television studio because they won't be subject to the same sort of ratings scrutiny mm. and the inbuilt politics of the kind of network wars, the MSNBC versus mm. Fox wars that we know are coloring all of our conversations about how we consume television. So it's a less risky way for these folks to enter the business. And the hope on the other side for the streaming services is they want to be direct competitors and produce original content rather than relying on buying content from movie studios like Disney and stuff like that. Yeah. 
So, Rachel, well, one of the things I thought about was the control of content. Now, I, we don't know what these deals look like. I'm going to assume that Shonda Rhimes has a real good grip on her content. I don't know what, what, what other kinds of deals were made with Oprah, with Nicole, and, and with the Obamas. But nevertheless, we can assume that the content is going to be very much different from what we may have seen on a network show. And I remind you that there was just a, a kerfuffle at ABC on Blackish with Kenya Barris when they had to pull an episode about, which was allegedly about uh, NFL players taking a knee because ABC did not like the content of that. Yes, and I would also like to remind you, I mean, I really hope what you said about control of content is correct, mm -hmm. but I would also like to remind you, and sometimes I've seen this positively, that in the last few years we've seen a number of times where television stations pull content because advertisers pull out. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we do need to be and sometimes it's like celebratory, mm -hmm. but we do need to remember that advertisers do shape content, like even if it's, you know, not something that we find offensive. Um, and and uh, the Washington Post article that you mentioned um, is also, you know, says we need to be reminded that um, that politics It was about the Obama one. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to be reminded that politics and culture are intertwined. And it is true. Like I often, I mean, I often tell this story about how sometimes I get frustrated um, and make students stand up and chant, there's no such thing as just entertainment, you know, mm. because, you know, every now and then at the back of the class, somebody will say, but isn't it just entertainment? <laughs> However, well, it's true, though. You, you, you probably know that, Michael. But anyway, so but another thing that I think we need to remember is there's no such thing as just entertainment because of the intertwinement with politics. But there's no such thing as just entertainment because of the intertwinement with corporatism and advertising. And so each of those three stories, like that's what brings them together, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. like huge companies trying to take control of another chunk of entertainment. Not that there aren't ways of, you know, undercutting it and saying important things, you know, um, in that context. But it is a recognizable new move. Just pay attention to that framework. That's my guest, Rachel Rubin, professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Michael, did you want to add to that? I mean, I just echo everything Rachel said, in particular about the competition and, and the need for corporations to kind of carve out as much of the pie for themselves as possible. I think we're all fascinated to see what actually comes out of this. With Oprah, she's a professional, right? She's been at this for a while. We have every reason to believe she's going to continue with the same sort of mode of storytelling that she's done so far, but we really have no idea what to expect from the Obamas, and they haven't given us very many hints. So I think it's, it's something to pay attention to. Well, Nicole is a professional, too. So yes. I think her because of her involvement uh, with Big Little Lies, that series, and she, you know, and that was a series that some folks did not support. So they really struggled to get that on. She and um, uh, the other actress whose name is escaping me right now. But anyway, they got it on, and I think she's gonna she's pushing for something else, too. So let's talk about reboots. Reboots are hot all of a sudden. Um, we had spoken about the reboot of Queer Eye, for the straight guy, that's what it was originally was called. Um, that was the, the the old series with Ted, who's on Chop now. If people are trying to remember that, and um, there's been one season of the new reboot of Queer Eye. So let's listen to a trailer of it and let's talk about uh, what this means. We all got to come together in a way where we can understand each other. You gotta show me how good my life can be if I just care. All of this only works because you were ready for it. 
So that was a clip from the new Queer Eye. That's the reboot that is um, airing on Netflix. Uh, again, it was a, it was a remake of the original series, which aired, I don't know, about 10 years or more ago. I am here. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, and Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at UMass Boston. We're talking about latest pop culture news, like the Queer Eye reboot. So... What happened here is that they've up for the second season. First season was mind-blowing, and they're doing all kinds of new things in the second season, um, making over a transgender guest, uh, a woman. They're expanding what the original purpose was, and uh, I-, I wonder what you thought about it, uh, Rachel. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, I'm sort of torn between, like, being happy for cultural visibility mm-hmm. of marginalized groups. Um, but then there are – there's a sort of way of taking something that is very usefully a subculture, right, and turning it into sort of a mainstream culture. So, uh, you know, that, that – that we have to sort of watch this, and te- I think, and tease out both of those things. Yeah, I, th- I think it comes at an interesting moment. You know, I think <laughs> – we we can't we can't live under this false pretense anymore. But I think many folks thought that the gay rights story was sort of already told and we had arrived somehow. <laughs> Yet, I, I mean, again, many of us, many people, I do think thought that well, gay, we got gay marriage, so we don't have to talk about that anymore. But the reality is, LGBT people in this country are still facing all kinds of horrid discrimination, uh, microaggressions, stereotyping, uh, physical violence, and hate crimes. So we don't want to lose just the basic power of seeing positive, healthy representations of queer folk on television, especially in this political moment when they're under attack from so many angles. Another piece of this story with respect to the reboot of Queer Eye is there are two gay men of color, I believe, who are front Mm -hmm. and center. Yes. And I think you spoke a little bit to the diversity of stories that Mm -hmm. we're seeing on this screen, which is far broader Mm -hmm. than the the range that we saw during the initial kind of um, show, the initial Queer Eye show. And that's powerful. It's powerful not only because the general public gets to see a broader range of representations, but for people who consider themselves members of the LGBT community, they're starving for those representations as well. This isn't just about straight consumers and mainstream society. This is about folks getting a chance to see themselves on screen in ways that they really haven't before. So I'm I'm sensitive to the, the need to pay attention to... Um, how this is being kind of mainstream and packaged for an acceptable audience. But it's I think it's already proven itself to be far more radical than the first uh, time it was on television. I, and I really also, Michael, I just really hope that they'll add class to that, too. Mm. And, they, and they may well, uh, because they are five successful guys who are the, the stars of this show. I'll note that with regard to the, the gay man who's a part of the queer cast, um, who is a person of color, well, there's two of them, but uh, I'm talking about the black men now. Mm-hmm. He was in a, in a show where he was alone driving a guy who was, well, I, looked like he was pretty much white supremacist. Um, he had all the entrapment in the house and all of that. And he had a very interesting conversation with the guy. I mean, they arrived, and the guy was happy to see them, but I don't think he had anticipated being alone. He said, 
so the 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 uh, uh, queer eye guy said, I have to say, this is not a situation I ever saw it myself in, and I got a lot of feelings about it. And they had a really interesting conversation in the car. I'm sure that was eye-opening for a lot of people, just a really kind of guy-to-guy conversation about, you know, what he said, you people have just been racist, and, you know, here I am in a car with you. How do I deal with this? It was very interesting. Um, just want to note, because uh, Michael is something that you brought up, and we have mentioned it in the past, but Pose is getting a lot of attention, too, and that show has five transgender actors. Um, so when you talk about people not sort of being in the forefront, these are and they're playing all different yeah. folks, all different kinds of folks on the show, and it's quite popular. So just one, and that's a Ryan Murphy production. Wanted to put that out there. Now continuing on our reboot conversation, uh, Kino Reeves and Alex Winter are talking about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I will say. Um, I want to play a clip from it, but when I mentioned this to Vikanda, who works on this, who's, let's say, younger, she said, I don't know what you're talking about, Bill and Ted. She had no resonance at all. So I guess it's time for a reboot. Let's hear a little bit. This is from the 1989 movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, in which the characters travel through time and meet Socrates. Socrates? Hey, we know that name. Yeah. Hey, look him up. Oh, it's under Socrates. Oh, yeah. Socrates. The only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. That's us, dude. Now, Rachel, is this a celebration of of uh, anti-intellectualism, or am I taking this just going way too far with this? <laughs> <laughs> in the end, they actually do learn a lot, so I think it's okay. Like, it's, it's, it is, it starts out that way, but I, they do learn a lot. Um, it's, it's a very interesting, I mean, one of the reasons, well, there's two reasons I'm interested in the remake, and one is that it's a remake, so the two characters who were high school students in the original are now, like, middle-aged fathers. Oh, okay. So, right. like, it's a movie about aging, but it's about time travel. So that sort of confuses me because I could just, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but that's interesting. That's that's, more interesting. So it's going to comment, you know, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, I mean, it was a very self-reflexive, the first two to begin with. So I think there's definitely going to be a lot of processing of aging. But the other thing, and you guys, Michael, you can answer this for me, maybe. So the way they time traveled in the first two movies was in a phone booth. We oh. don't have phone booths anymore. <laughs> well, they're gonna have to come up with. They something. can't time travel in somebody's, you know, smartphone, right? <laughs> I mean, so I don't know how that's gonna happen. Oh, production but it, dilemma. <laughs> it, I mean, it sounds like you're very. Maybe you're the target audience. Yeah, <laughs> really, because this was not my. I, I had no resonance with these people when they were there out in the first time around. <laughs> yeah, but I, it isn't. It's intriguing, I think, because. Um, you know, I, I do kind of have a similar reading of the first one in that I thought it was kind of an educational film. I really did. It was. I mean, they're really? at least they're at least curious. You okay. know, like that's the first. No, they're curious <laughs> and like people watching it would learn about various like you know Socrates is one, but there were a lot of others. Yeah, that doesn't mean it wasn't fraught in all in all kinds of ways, right? Like we may we may go back and be like, wow, that was really problematic the way they were teaching the audience. But I think this is another opportunity to see like how far we've come in terms of. You know, men, middle-aged men and the idea of introspection and being a lifelong learner, right? If those are the themes that we're going to get from it, I think it could be valuable. If it's going to be another sort of entertaining film that has lots of hijinks about middle-aged men acting like boys, then I don't have a lot of interest in it. That's for sure. And if they don't do at least 50% of the child care... 
<laughs> I just want to point out that two of you are professors, so you're looking for educational opportunities. We are. <laughs> That's all I want to say. Um, there's a couple of things that have come up, one a movie and one uh, a TV series, and we're, we're once again dealing with the question of stereotyping groups uh, or looking for a villain in someplace else. The first is a movie called Peppermint, which stars Jeff Jennifer Garner. And there's been quite a lot of... Uh, upset about the fact that uh, this is uh, stereotyping uh, Hispanic Latino folks calling and at a time when, you know, there's name calling around this issue. So let's listen to a clip from Peppermint. Out man, now gone. How you really think this is going to go? I will kill every one of you. All right, that's Peppermint. I want to play both these clips and then have you talk about it. Now, Quantico is a series on NBC that's quite popular, starring Priyanka Chopra. Um, and they yet they got in trouble um, after an episode in which there was a stereotyping of um, Indians, South Asians. And um, so here we are, the, you know, literally Hindu terror, that kind of thing. Here's a clip from Quantico episode called The Blood of Romeo, which aired on June 1st. I don't get it. Flag operation, Indian nationalists hoping to frame Pakistan in a mushroom cloud. We won't just scuttle the peace talks and put America on India's side forever. That true? You Indian? You don't know what those pigs have done to my family. You don't know what they're capable of. So you know, every now, every year, every so often, it seems to me the filmmakers look around or somebody looks around to try to find out who's a who's a villain that everybody can relate to, and they sort of lob on to whatever group seems to be popular in that moment for a while, and it may still be. There were a lot of Muslim folks. Um, is this a part of that pattern? Is this just people not paying attention once again? What's happening? Well, I mean, I first of all, I need to sort of separate the two a little bit and talk about the first one, which is definitely a part of a pattern. And I'll, you know, try to, like, rein myself in because I've written a lot about gangster movies, mm. right, when the which are some of the earliest, you know, sound movies in the United States um, uh, cinema history. Um, and in those gangster movies, the villains were immigrants. And they were immigrants from Europe, but mm. there would be these, like, times in the movie where people would just give these clearly edited-in speeches about how awful these immigrants were and then that changes over and it's it's awful mm. you know although there's some triumphalist aspects but that changes sort of over the course of it right i mean so we have a long-standing history of turning whatever immigrant group we're currently afraid of into gangsters and villains and i so i definitely think that 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 fits in now and you are absolutely right to say you know oh my gosh now it's this time when we're like we're turning latino people into you know threats mm -hmm. so we are like expressing that in these movies that is a long-standing american gangster movie history um from the 30s you know, several different stages up until the present. Hmm. So where, how would you put then the Quantico piece then? You said you wanted to separate the yes. two. Yes, so the Quantico piece is just a little more interesting to me because, um, I mean, it's upsetting, hmm. you know, but but because, so for in the first place, we tend to see Indians, you know, like there's an academic who used the phrase model minority about hmm. them. Um, and the separation of India and Pakistan is that Pakistan's the Muslims, Right. Mm. So in a way, I mean, it's not working, clearly, if it's getting all this pushback because like meaning is created by how the audience takes it in. But in a way, I saw that as an effort to say, you guys, you're being tricked. 
like all Muslims aren't terrorists. Mm, interesting. Okay, um, Michael? Yeah, and I think Chopra actually apologized for it or, or yes. made some statement. Mm -hmm. so, and then I think clouds it even more because it, it su suggests that she also kind of views it as harmful and problematic. And I think her position in all this is one of the really interesting stories because she's one of the few uh, South Asian women mm -hmm. in a starring role on mainstream television. And so many of the other characters who appear are either stereotypes of immigrants or stereotypes of uh, military folks or terrorists. Uh, she's in a really unique position as someone who's breaking up that stereotype. And it speaks to the need for just a much broader representation. I mean, you're so right to point out the history of uh, gangster movies and criminalizing immigrants in these movies. There is a long tradition. And the, and the answer is not just to erase all those characters from the screen, but to broaden the representation of Latinx people, of South Asian people, such that the stereotyping ceases to make any kind of sense. I mean, and that's that's really what, why Quantico, I think, was and remains an, an important show because of Chopra's role in it. And I think her role going forward uh, is worth paying paying attention to, even though she doesn't have cr that much creative control mm. right over the lines in the script. That's another piece of the story. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Michael Jeffries. You just heard him and Rachel Rubin, our pop culture contributors. And we're talking about the pop culture news you may have missed. Well, let's go to something that's a little bit more uplifting. Um, <laughs> women ruling at the box office. So Ocean's 8 blew it everybody out. Um, I should note that I did not know this until now. Uh, the, it led all movies for between June 8th and 10th. Um, $41.5 million, but more, they made more money than all the other Ocean 8 films. That, those are the ones, including George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Brad Pitt. Let's take a listen from a clip from Ocean's 8. Three and a half weeks, and that will be hosting its annual ball, and we are going to rob it. Oh, oh. $16.5 million in each of your bank accounts five weeks from now. That's a lot. Well, I'm excited because, and I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I just haven't had a chance to go. Um, have either of you seen it? I've no, seen no, it yet. no. Uh, at all interested? Seen the others. Have yeah. all interested? I will see it eventually. Okay. Yeah. So, what do you think about are women ruling, or is this a fluke? I think it's happening. Okay. I think it's happening slowly but surely. We're seeing a whole lot of inroads in terms of right people being able to dismiss the myth that women leads can't carry films like this. So, in, in 2016, USC did a study of the 100 top grossing action films, there were 34 women leads. And of those 34, only three of them were women of color. So 100 top grossing action films, only three women of color as leads or co-leads. And we're starting to see this go away gradually in the, mm -hmm. in the movie industry. It only makes sense. It's crazy that we're still talking about this today, given the uh, Oscar So White campaign and all the proof that studios no now have that women can lead and succeed in comedies, that women can lead and succeed in action films. And I think the next step is, again, giving women more control behind the camera as cinematographers, as directors, as executive producers and, and screenwriters. Before you talk about Ocean's 8, Rachel, I want to play a clip from Viola Davis's new action flick, because Michael's talking about women leading in, in action films. She has a new one coming out, and this is a clip uh, from her movie, which is called Widows. Something happened tonight, something bad. Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. 
They stole a lot of money. And now people want it from us. Now the best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. Drop the mic, Rachel. Great use think? of balls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. No, I, I, I actually, I, I agree with what, what Michael said. And I do think, you know, there is change. I mean, I think there are definitely times when I get down and say, oh, my gosh, it's not getting any better. But I would like to add an aspect of, um, of, the, of analysis here that we haven't taken up yet. And that is how much women get paid yeah. in these well, roles compared mm -hmm. to how much men get paid. Yeah, that's and, true. Right. There's spend some attention to that but not and it's just such a huge difference huge huge mm -hmm. difference mm -hmm. and i don't think there's been enough attention to that so we need to just sort of remember you're absolutely it's correct a, it's a business i know it's work <laughs> um well off the screen but on the page and this is it'll maybe end up on the screen um marvel comics which everybody knows is ruling the the big screen right now with all of the films avengers and this and that um hired a young woman gabby rivera and she is queer, this is her definition for herself, and Latina, and she's writing a queer Latina superhero. Seems obvious, but doesn't usually happen. <laughs> so it's just pretty interesting on two fronts. First of all, they hired her, and second, she's doing this hero response. <laughs> I, this is, uh, I'm actually really excited for this, in part because if, uh, this is maybe a little bit particular to those of us who study culture in the academy, but if you look at the history of like comic studies and fan fiction, that sort of genre, there are all kinds of queer interpretations of comic book mm. stories and comic book characters and superheroes. Like you, one of the canonical examples of this is the Batman and Robin relationship, right? It doesn't take a, a queer theorist to have a queer reading of that relationship. Mm. Um, so there's all this to say, there are a whole bunch of really passionate fans who are uh, desperate to see a, a more upfront and, and marketable and uh, unapologetic representation of queerness in comic books and hopefully on the big screen in this role because it speaks to uh, a need for a different kind of representation, not just a representation of real life, but the, the kind of queer imagination of these characters and the idea that queer folks can have these kind of superpowers, right? And this is, this is a very, com again, let's not lose sight of the commercial power of this. They're trying to tap into an audience that they can extract some capital from. But nevertheless, um, there's a huge opportunity, I think, to have a broader range of representations and to give folks representations that they just haven't haven't seen before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember how much in the comic book world people talked about it the first time a character came out. Mm. It was mm -hmm. huge. Mm. Um, and I actually can sort of picture it on the page because he's fighting someone and he goes, pow, I, pow, am, pow, gay. You know, and it's like <laughs> wow. this very dramatic superhero moment. But it's been decades, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, this is really, really, I mean, I think this is really important and it is more than one aspect, of, you know. I mean, uh, uh, to sort to add to what you're saying, like there are a lot of people who have um, done readings of super of superhero comic books to say, you know, look, they are definitely showing that there's something different, yep. right? They're setting aside yep. difference, and that comic books in various ways were early representers, for example, of AIDS. Mm. Um, but um, but in this case, the thing that has really really gotten to me, you know, as the most like wonderful useful thing about it is the character who's a queer you know, Latina woman. Her name is America. Mm, and I missed that point. You're right. 
Wow, that's very interesting. All right, well, we'll be looking for that. I'm sure it'll end up on the big screen because Marvel's putting everything, all their characters on the screen and making tons of money doing it. Because um, you say it's all about commerce, Rachel. Wow. <laughs> we can still work with it. <laughs> okay. Um, I, For people who may have, have thought that uh, Colin Kaepernick, and that is a former uh, San Francisco uh, NFL player, might have gone away or his story has gotten sort of subsumed in lots of other political uh, things going on with the president and the NFL and the First Amendment and blah, blah, blah. Um, his personal story, however, is about to be um, put on, made a part of a series, and it is going to be produced by Ava DuVernay. When people know that name from Selma and then her most recent A Mo Moment in Time. No, that's not Wrinkle in Time, A Wrinkle in Time with Oprah. Uh, so first, let's listen to a clip from Colin Kaepernick, who rarely speaks, but he won an award in Amsterdam where he received uh, Amnesty International's Ambassador of Conscience Award in 2018. While taking a knee is a physical display that challenges the merits of who is excluded from the notion of freedom, liberty, and justice for all. The protest is also rooted in the convergence of my moralistic beliefs and my love for the people. Seeking the truth, finding the truth, telling the truth, and living the truth has been and always will be what guides my actions. So a whole series, and it's about his high school years. So it's like what formed him before he got to the point where his conscience would said to him, I, I, I want to make a protest about um, police brutality and uh, African-American men, particularly. What do you all think about this? He has an interesting backstory mm. because uh, he's adopted. Yes. Um, and his birth parents, one was black and one was white, and he was adopted into a white family. So there's a lot to tell just with that backstory alone, in addition to his athletic success and his intellectual development. I think what's going to be interesting is how explicit they try to make the connection between Kaepernick as a fully formed activist and organizer today and who he was as a child. Because that's a, to me, that's a, that's a difficult line to toe. Mm. We all change so much from the time we were in high school to the time we're 25 years old, 30 years old. And, and <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so, his image, the iconography of Kaepernick has become so huge now. People are going to be looking at it through that lens and looking for today's Kaepernick in the depiction of Kaepernick as a child. And I'll be interested to see how uh, DuVernay, Kaepernick, and the other folks play with those expectations and try to disrupt those expectations and show vulnerability and, and, and a lack of clarity and someone who's searching and the kind of angst that we see in so many of these coming-of-age uh, depictions. Mm. But like I said, the details of his life alone are are, are worthy of, of being retold. Rachel? And I think you're making a really important point, of course, because like when, when, you know, when we go into looking at things that are biographical, we sort of think they're like somehow a perfect like snapshot instead of their, their own argument and they, you know, yeah. decide what to show and what not to show. And it might not even always be actually historically accurate. And so it would be very interesting to see like what points they're trying to make about what led him to this moment. Um, you know, it's very, oh, the whole thing has been very interesting for me. Um, especially as a Baltimorean, you know, mm -hmm. because like we we know all the verses to the Star Spangled Banner. Mm -hmm. And like in my high school, we spent actually a great, great amount of time talking about how racist a mm -hmm. couple of them were. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of shocking that like you get in trouble for calling that out. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. I thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Jeffries is Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College and Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Coming up, in a moment of pain and sadness, Anne Barry Jolis asked for grace. Years later, she was inspired to create the Grace Trail in Plymouth, Massachusetts, as a tool for building resilience. Now thousands have walked Grace Trails across the country and the world. Anne Barry Jolis and the Grace Trail. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. I'm just gonna inhale and exhale. Take my first step on the Grace Trail. That was Grace Trail, a song Joe Merrick wrote in tribute to a Plymouth walking trail by the same name. And Barry Jolis created the Grace Trail four years ago as a way to cope with a myriad of emotional struggles. Now her trail is everyone's trail. Thousands have created Grace Trails from Cairo, Egypt, to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Recently, Good Housekeeping magazine cited Jolis's original trail in Massachusetts and her new work expanding her Grace mission as a tool for building resilience. And Anne Barry Jolis joins me now in studio. Welcome to Under the Radar, Anne. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. Well, first of all, before we talk about how it all came to be, yes. explain what the Grace Trail is in Plymouth. Okay. <laughs> the Grace Trail is a five-step simple process that begins with gratitude and it ends with hope. And the Grace Trail in Plymouth is an actual trail that I created when my son was in Afghanistan in combat in 2012. I read an article at that time uh, about the Appalachian Mountain Trail, and they asked, who's hiking the trail? And the answer was, it's a whole lot of vets walking off their war. And I said, wow, where do I go to walk off my war? And that was when I decided to make an inspirational trail in Plymouth that would not only help me to cope, but would help others to cope. So I walked down to the beach in Plymouth, and I picked up a big granite boulder, and I wrote gratitude on it. What are you grateful for? And I put it down on the trail. That's the first step on Grace Trail, because grace is an acronym for gratitude, release, accept, challenge, and embrace. So the first step is gratitude. What are you grateful for? And then I went down to the beach. I picked up a big boulder and wrote release. What do you need to release to move forward in your life? I put that boulder down. I did the A for acceptance and wrote accept. What's calling out for acceptance in your life? Again, another big boulder, challenge. How do you want to challenge yourself to move forward? I wrote that. Put it down on the trail. And then E, what can you embrace as possible in your precious life? And I hung a map up that said Grace Trail, and it had the five questions and where the rocks were located. It's a mile-long loop that runs along the harbor. And I expected to get a cease and desist because I don't own the land, but Plymouth has done nothing but support Grace Trail. They have been absolutely wonderful, and thousands have discovered it. So just to be clear, just yes. so that everybody's clear about it, it is a physical trail yes. that, uh, on land you do not own, to be clear, yeah. <laughs> but it also is a concept. It's a concept. Mm -hmm. And so you really don't have to come to Plymouth. 
Mm-hmm. First of all, you can create your own trail anywhere you are by creating it. People are creating them in workshops, retreats. Uh, they're making their own trails in their backyards, in their offices. All you really need to do to walk the Grace Trail is to talk the Grace Trail. And you do that by asking the five Grace Trail questions. And you can do that anywhere and anytime. So let's go back to the to, to, to the moment of creativity around yes. this. You were in a tough space emotionally. Yes. So yes. talk about that if yes. you would. Uh, you know, this story goes back to 2000, really, when I lost my bounce in life. And um, I had two parents that had just passed away within six months of each other. I had teenagers who had, you know, their own challenges in high school. And I was going back to school at that point to change professions and become a life coach. All of those together just knocked me right off my feet. I found myself in my kitchen saying, I need to step into a state of grace. Um, but well, I, well, why I did knew, you think you said it? I have no idea. Okay. I, I, I will tell right. you that uh, okay. I, think, I think I was channeled at that point uh, with a message because I obviously had heard the expression before, but it wasn't something I said often. And what I meant by grace was I was looking for a quieter, more peaceful place that I felt was right next to me, but I couldn't get there. I couldn't find my way there. So I was looking for a way from the chaos and confusion of my life to a more peaceful place where I could function better. And so I saw five words in the word grace. I saw gratitude, release, accept, challenge, and embrace. Later on that day, I started asking the five questions that naturally flow, and that's the Mm -hmm. questions I put on the trail. And it wasn't until 2012 when I once again lost my my balance, having a son in combat who has returned home, by the way, and is in a period of post-traumatic growth. Thank you, God. Mm -hmm. Right? It wasn't until he was in combat in 2012 and I could see all those horrifying pictures on Facebook and uh, it was just all too real for me that I lost my bounce again. And that was when I reached out and... um, decided to make a trail. And so this wonderful concept of grace that I had been working with and using for a decade all of a sudden manifested itself on a trail, which at that point I had no intention of it growing to the point it's growing because people are walking it all over the country right. and and elsewhere. So let's talk about why you think, what's the difference between a walk in the woods and the grace trail? Well, first of all, uh, the difference is that Grace Trail is a very simple conversation that you can have with yourself or with others. So a walk in the wood, you amble, you wander, and that's all wonderful. I love a walk with no intention. But when you walk the Grace Trail, it's, a, it's built on curiosity. It's five questions. There's no one telling you how to think, how to feel, or what to do. It's actually the first time possibly that day that you've got to listen to yourself and actually ask yourself questions that matter and It's an invitation into a conversation with yourself, a private one, Mm. or with others that that gets you to talk about the things in life that are important to you. My guest is Ann Barry Jolis. She's creator of the Plymouth, Massachusetts Grace Trail and actually a model based on the Grace Trail, resiliency. Uh, We're talking about the meaning and purpose of the trail, which is really about resiliency, as you said. Yes. So it sounds to me, as you've described it, because you had, as you put it, lost your bounce a couple of times. Yeah. You can achieve your bounce back or your balance and then go back to this right. if you need to. So it's a kind of restorative. It uh, doesn't have to be one and done kind right. of thing. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Okay. Every time you walk the Grace Trail, it's different. And that's what I'm hearing from everyone. It's a very quick access to a very deep uh, feeling of hope. And you and I are both agents of hope, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're, we're in the business of helping people to walk towards their preferred future. 
And I am hearing over and over again from people that they are finding a great deal of relief in asking the five questions and a great deal, their excess hope when they're walking the trail, uh, possibly in Plymouth or anywhere else that they create their own. Mm. But when they ask those five Grace Trail questions, they are walking towards hope and possibility. Well, tell me a couple stories about people you've heard from who have benefited from using the model that you've created. Well, I've walked a lot of Grace Trails in some of the Boston hospitals and the cancer centers, and I hear from cancer survivors all the time that it's a great tool that they can, it's easy to remember, it's easy to ask, and it meets them right where they are in life, which some days is great and other days is very difficult. So no matter where you start on the Grace Trail or when you ask those questions, there are cancer survivors who are certainly getting relief from it. There are people in recovery. The recovery community is, is reaching out and embracing Grace Trail in a great way. I'm getting photos from people who are giving recovery retreats and actually making the trails through the woods. And I have lovely pictures of people really um, embracing the Grace Trail. There's give me, give me something specific, because I think people are listening and going, I don't, I'm not sure I get that. Okay. You know, okay, there's some questions and yeah. there's a word, but yeah. but what, what are people getting out of it? Give me a story about somebody who um, embraced this concept and had something to tell you about what happened on the other side. Okay. Mm. Well, I was sitting, I'm um, having coffee the other day in Plymouth, and this woman came up to me. She said, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, she was uh, probably in her 70s. And she said, I just want to tell you this, that um, I moved to Plymouth. And my daughter introduced me to the Grace Trail because she and her daughter walk it all the time. And I wasn't sure what it was, but I started walking it. I started asking the questions. I do it so many times. And she says, it makes me feel better. I feel less sad. I feel less confused. And I go there as often as I possibly can. And is that because you're asking the questions and it makes yes. you feel less sad? Yes, I uh, would because say. Because if I get to the challenge part, for example, maybe I have so many challenges, I feel depressed, okay. not actually That's uplifted. A great, that is a great question. Because <laughs> okay. the question is not, hey, Callie, what are your challenges? Mm. The questions are, Callie, how would you like to challenge yourself in this moment to move forward? in the direction of your choice. So this challenge question, because that's a great nuance you just brought up, this challenge question is about choice. This challenge question is, what do you want to create in your life? And when you get clear on that, then you start to move in that direction. Yeah, but but I, I guess I'm thinking about the person that's saying, I've tried to move in that direction. I kind of know what where, where I want to go. But yet, it hasn't happened. Why will this thing help me? This thing meets you right where you are, and it takes maybe baby steps, and it starts to pick away at some of the things that are in your way. The five steps of grace are sort of magical because it starts with gratitude, which mm -hmm. I think is a gift in itself. Because gratitude helps you find the bottom of that big black hole that's out dragging, of your control, you down. dragging you down. Mm -hmm. So you can stop that spiral of negativity right there with the first question. So that's your first impact is what's going right? And um, and that could be as simple as I'm standing up and walking around this trail. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's mm -hmm. as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that all of a sudden turns your perspective to what's going right in mm -hmm. life versus all that's going wrong. The next question is what do I need to release? And so that's about making your load mm -hmm. lighter. And when you can release, then you make room for the things in your life that you want to enter. Mm -hmm. And it also lightens your load to move forward. And, you know, you may say to yourself, Yarian, but I have challenges and things I can't put down. I can't let them go. Then can you just put them down for a while? You can put them to the side for a while. 
And then the acceptance piece is a, is a wonderful piece because we're all spending so much time avoiding what's bothering us, looking the other way and distracting ourselves. This, one, this question says, what's calling out for acceptance? Mm. And if you can just sit there and look at what's calling out for acceptance and just be with that instead of trying to uh, overspend, well, over-ignore, yeah, whatever. whatever. Yes. Yeah. Self-medicate in, yeah. in weird ways. That's right. So there's yeah. only yeah. one way through it, yeah. and that's to get through this tough stuff. And then to ask yourself, okay, how would I like to challenge myself? If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And you're listening to my guest, Ann Barry Jolis. She's creator of the Plymouth, Massachusetts Grace Trail. And we're talking about the meaning and the purpose of the trail. Now, the gratitude movement is huge. Huge. And uh, would you put Grace, your Grace Trail, inside that movement? That's the first step on the uh, Grace Trail. Okay, it's so it's a part of it. It certainly is aligned so closely with it. But the gratitude only goes so far, as we all know. Mm-hmm. But believe me, it's an underutilized gift. But uh, the nice thing about the Grace Trail is then you then have a path towards hope and possibility that gives you uh, more depth, more breadth. Based on gratitude. Based, based on gratitude. Because it's mm-hmm. so nice to start with gratitude. Right. I don't think we can do that enough in life is to just keep asking what's going right because that's a gratitude question. So now a lot of people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, this is a little too woo-woo for me. Yeah. But I, I so I just want to say this before I ask you to respond to that. Yeah. There is a fair amount of scientific research sure about uh, spending time sort of reorienting yourself beginning with gratitude yes. and moving forward. That that it does take you to a different place emotionally right. and psychologically. So we're not just talking no. all out of our armpits here. No, today. we're not. No, you no, and no. Me, Anne. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how do you explain it to people when people say, "Man, I don't know. It feels a little, a little too weird to me." What how, new new agey, if you will? Well, how do you how do you say to them? Well, no, actually, it's not. I say try <laughs> it. I really challenge people out there to ask the five Grace Trail questions, and then see how they feel. I can quote all the statistics on gratitude. I can tell you the neuroscience of each step on the Grace Trail. And, you know, really it comes down to are you willing to just give something new a try? Well, here's something else. Some people are willing to do it, and they're creating, as you said, their Grace Trails everywhere. Um, One that I was interested in uh, close by us is uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Yes. There's a wonderful professor at Berkeley, uh, Steve Wilkes, who's done amazing work just sort of capturing the sounds of the White Mountains. So I want to give people a listen to. If you're walking the trail and creating your Grace Trail in the White Mountains, this is a little bit of what you'll hear. There is something about the nature, just the sounds of nature that can, you know, serve as a uh, wonderful backdrop as you're working through these issues. There's no question about that. And that gives you a little bit of an oomph if you're going through the exercises. You have actually, when we talk about the physical trails that people are creating, you have a little map here that you've created with stones and they can put them in different places and they can follow this. So they have some kind of, it's not just, as you say, it's not just wandering. It's actually a purposeful, intentional kind of path to take. Mm -hmm. As I learned about you, I was 
picking up the the June issue of of uh, Good Housekeeping, yeah. and there it was. Yeah. And part of that note was to say that you know people are are picking this up and moving along with it. What what kind of response have you gotten since Good Housekeeping listed it as? one of the things that you should do this summer. Well, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing because mm-hmm. uh, people are co- reaching out from all over the country and they're saying, how do I do this? And um, I recently created a kit for people to do just that. It's Create Your Own Grace Trail Kit. It's the soup to nuts for creating your own grace trail. But one really interesting inquiry that I've gotten recently is from Northern British Columbia from an indigenous person reservation. And the uh, public health director up there wrote to me and said, Anne, we have intergenerational trauma that's overwhelming with suicide and substance abuse. We are going to be putting a grace trail into our healing path. We're going to interpret it into our native language. And uh, we feel this is the essence of healing and hope, and we want to share this with our people up here, which is so exciting. Uh, There's a Grace Trail being run this week um, in a South Shore hospital. They reached out in the cancer center, and they're going to run it through their healing garden. They're having an open house for cancer survivors. There's a school down in Hanover that built a Grace Trail. Students reached out and they used, used it as their senior project to build a grace trail behind their school that connects the Hanover High School and the middle school so that you've got the community, staff, and students all walking it. And I got a really exciting reach out from Washington State. A middle school there is going to incorporate the grace trail behind their middle school, and they're going to use it with their restorative justice program, which mm. is uh, if a kid has done something wrong, they're going to use the grace trail to help them to right that wrong and do something right and give back. So there's all kinds of exciting ways that are going on. It's a movement, and people are reaching out to me from all across the country and now across the world. So I think that's a couple of questions that other people might want to know. Okay. Like, for example, is your is your son ever used the Grace Trail? My son walks the Grace Trail <laughs> with me, and I think we mostly do it now in conversations. You know, the, these questions, once you start asking these five questions, look, I didn't make up these words, right? Mm-hmm. These are time-tested words and question of wisdom. And my son and I talk frequently, and he is, you know, gratefully moving forward and taking on new challenges that inspire me. There are vets who are walking it, and um, but he certainly spreads the Grace Trail in the VA. He spreads the Grace Trail in different programs he's uh, a part of, and he's a wonderful inspiration to me. So now you said that you, you know, can walk the trail or understand it, or yep. you can invite it in. What do you mean by inviting it in? Explain that. I think that grace shows up, and all grace is is a gift, an unasked-for gift that you receive— and it shows up unexpectedly often. I receive them a lot. And part of the reason that I, I feel like I receive so much grace is because I still have to notice when something wonderful enters my life. And I also invite it in by asking these five questions and walking the grace trail. All of us have people telling us what to do and telling us how we feel. But when you walk the grace trail, you actually ask the questions and you hear your own answers. And that's one of the gifts, the gifts of grace, I believe. Well, Anne Barry Jolis, thank you so much for joining me. Callie, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Anne Barry Jolis is creator of the Plymouth, Massachusetts Grace Trail and the Grace Trail Resiliency Model.
Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Vakanda Lagoinpai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Taking back freedom and serenity, walking on the